You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is the second installment in our series that we're calling Black Theology Month, where we're looking at influential black thinkers and black theologians, and today we're looking at the late James Baldwin. Here's a a picture of him. For those of you, uh, that's a great one, (laughs) that pose. (laughs) It's like he's saying, really? Um, I love that. Baldwin wasn't a theologian today. That's an important thing, I guess, to say here at the outset, but more of a philosopher and a civil rights activist who was also a um, proficient writer, a proliferate writer and public intellectual. He was also a gay man. That's something a lot of people don't know. Um, And so he knew something about being discriminated against for that too. And his work, therefore, takes on a certain intersectionality, I would say. He died in 1987 at the age of 63. So he's been gone for a while, but his legacy lives on. And there's really been a resurgence lately uh, of interest in his work, perhaps because of the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, increase or interest in critical race theory. Even though most of Baldwin's work was done, most of his writing was done in the 60s and 70s, it's seen as prescient and timeless and just as relevant then as it is now. In fact, some describe him as the best interpreter of American culture and racial issues this country has ever produced. Um, That's a, a point of view held by some academics, which is really saying something. Now, again, even though Baldwin wasn't a theologian per se, he delved into theology often because he couldn't avoid it uh, for a few reasons. He grew up in the church. He grew up in Harlem. His stepfather was a pastor, a preacher there, Baptist preacher in Harlem. And Baldwin himself actually became a preacher during his teenage years at a Pentecostal church there in in Harlem, uh, which only led to his deconstruction. He, of course, did not That wasn't a buzzword back then. He didn't call it deconstruction, but that's what it was. Um, What happened was he, you know, as a teenage boy preaching in in these churches, he became privy to the back room where the pastors met. And he saw firsthand how how the sausage was made. He saw the hypocrisy. He saw how so much of it was a money grab and a show. And it wasn't just his church that he saw that in, but other churches in Harlem and in his own stepfather's life, who again was a Baptist preacher. um, He saw, and he was abused by the man. He saw the hypocrisy. He saw how the game was played being a pastor. And simultaneously, while he was in high school, he was reading Dostoevsky. (laughs) He was reading these, uh, these, these, these writers who critiqued fundamentalist religion. And so, you know, the fact that he was reading Dostoevsky, and this was like, the, what, the 1940s or 50s? He was born in 24, and he was a teenager. So this was like the late 1930s, I think, or early in the 40s. He was reading these critiques of religion. And by the time he finished high school, he had stopped preaching at church. He had, he had um, left the church and pretty much became an atheist. That being said, he knew theology and religion was a huge part of the civil rights movement and that it undergirded not just the fight for black liberation, but also the fight for white supremacy. So he understood how religion was a powerful tool in the culture, and he explored this in his writings. He really explored this in depth, the role of religion and theology and God uh, in the culture and specifically in the fight for, uh, for, for black liberation. He explored this perhaps most of all in his 1962 book, The Fire Next Time, which I was going to bring this morning, my copy of it, and show you. It's, it's actually a very thin book, and it's very, very uh, easily, very, very readable. I encourage you to read it. It's called The Fire Next Time. And I'm going to quote from this book here this morning. I've got I know, a handful of quotes um, that will be up on the screen, and uh, then I'll comment on them. The first one is this. If the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be 
to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God cannot do this, if God cannot do this, then it's time that we got rid of him. <laughs> I love that. On one hand, there's something kind of atheistic about this statement, right? He's wondering if God has outlived his positive uses as a force for good in the world. And if so, he's suggesting that we do away with God and that we actually have the power. We have the power to do this. It's not that hard. He's the way he's making it sound, right? Only someone who's, you know, a bit of an atheist would say such a thing, right? But I think he's also being quite theistic here too, which is to say, I think he's I think he's trying to affirm a certain kind of God while negating another. He actually says elsewhere, and this, this will be up on the screen too, I conceive of God as a means of liberation and not as a means to control others. I conceive of God, he says. I conceive of God as a means of liberation and not as a means to control others. And he knew something about the church trying to control others. Keep in mind, he was not just an African-American, but he was a, a closet gay man. So he was actually quite affirming of God here. He was actually quite affirming of God and faith and religion, just as long as it was a force for liberation in the world. And I think Baldwin thought of religion as a technology that could be used for collective and self-transformation. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think of religion, too. It's a technology. What is a technology? Well, the simplest definition uh, is that it's a useful art or a useful craft. Usually when we hear, hear the word technology, we think of computers or machines, right? Well, actually, a technology is any kind of useful art or a useful craft. And religion and, and spiritual traditions can therefore be a, a technology, a technology that we use for individual and collective transformation or for creating meaning, for creating meaning in the world, for building or organizing community. Religion is a powerful technology, powerful instrument in that regard. So I think Baldwin understood this. Um, and I think that's why he never completely dismissed religion. And I think he's also trying to clarify what we mean when we speak of God in these lines. He's trying to clarify what we mean when we speak of God and how we, how we ultimately bear the responsibility for God. You know, this conservative Christian idea that we all were taught that, you know, God's all-powerful, God doesn't need us, right? Well, Baldwin flips that on its head and says, no. We bear the responsibility for God in the world. You know, without us, in a way, he's, he doesn't exist. His existence, in a lot of ways, absolutely depends upon us. And how we think of God and what we say about God, all of that is dependent upon us. God's reality in the world, in our communities, not just in our own hearts and minds, but in our communities, in the social fabric of our lives, that God is entirely our responsibility, he was saying. And if our concepts of God, if our concepts of God are not freeing and liberative and healing, then it's time we got rid of that God, at least, if not the entire project of God. And keep, keep in mind, or to make clear, the way I'm reading Baldwin is, is that he's not trying to make an argument for or against some transcendent higher power up there. He's, he's setting that whole conversation aside. He's not trying to argue for or against the existence of a higher power. He's simply trying to clarify what we mean when we speak of God. He's simply saying that our concepts of God, our religions, our worldviews, and the social systems and the social hierarchies that, that they create, these things are human constructs. We are responsible for them. And we need to take ownership of that, he's saying. These things are human constructs, and thereby they reflect who we are. Our beliefs, our gods, our concepts of God, our projections of ourselves, he's saying. In other words, the God we believe in is a projection of our desires, our fears, our hopes, 
our anxieties, our antagonisms, our worldview, what we want to see in the world, that the God we often believe in is really a projection of those unconscious, and they're usually unconscious, desires and biases and fears. Therefore, the God someone believes in tells us a lot about them. In fact, we could put it this way. The God you believe in tells, tells us more about you than it does really about God. But this means, again, we are responsible for our gods. This is what Baldwin is saying. This reminds me of a joke I once heard. It's been a while since I've shared it. You probably don't remember it, so it's fair game. Uh, about a chicken farmer who's convinced that he's chicken feed and he's terrified his chickens one day are going to eat him. And so he goes to a psychologist to get over this delusion. And at the last day, the last session he's with the psychologist, he tells him, hey, listen, thanks so much for helping me get over this crazy idea that I'm chicken feed. It's a huge relief, but there's just one more problem. What's that? His psychologist says. So the, the farmer replies, I know I'm no longer chicken feed but my chickens don't know that. Who's going to convince them? This is the way people sound when they say things like, I don't have a problem with gay people. I love gay people. But you know, God, God's got a big problem with them. You know, God, the Bible's got big problems with, <laughs> with them. Who's going to convince the Bible and God? I, I love gay people. I'm all for their rights. But you know, this God says otherwise, and we have to obey him, right? I don't need to be convinced to love gay people. My chickens do, or God, God does. It's not me, it's my chickens. Baldwin is saying, you are your chickens. It's time to own up to it. You are your chickens. You are your God, so to speak. Stop projecting your racist and homophobic nonsense onto God and take responsibility. And maybe it's not so much us as individuals that are often doing the projecting, but our, our churches, our, our traditions are, are, or our culture is. But nonetheless, somebody somewhere, somebody somewhere is projecting their hate, their xenophobia onto God, and we've inherited that. And we need to own up to how we've inherited that and how we are perpetuating and participating in that system, in that delusion, in that projection. It's time to get some new chickens, Baldwin is saying. Or acknowledge that we've been projecting onto our chickens. This is what Baldwin is saying. The next quote of his I want us to look at today is this one. It's a bit lengthy, but it's so rich and, and insightful. And this will be up on the screen, I believe. There it is, at least the first part of it. Behind black bodies, and I'm switching out he uses a different word that I don't feel comfortable using. Behind black bodies is what white Americans do not wish to face, reality. The fact that life is tragic. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets. And one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice three of our lives. We will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques. It's talking about religion, right? Races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide indeed to earn one's death. I love that ought to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. That's what we endeavor to do here as a community, by the way, is to confront with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying void from which we come and which we shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. But white Americans, white Americans do not believe in death. And by that, I think he means white Christian Americans do not believe in death. And this is why the darkness of my skin so intimidates them. 
and cold. So much there to unpack. It's interesting that he says the darkness of his skin is a symbol of death and that it makes it something white Americans just can't handle. He's talking about how our culture often correlates, again, this is my reading of Baldwin, could be wrong. I think he's talking about how our culture often correlates the shade of black with death and evil. Think about how people wear black to a funeral, right? Or think of how the villain in our movies often wears black and the good guy you know, wears white. Or think of how the Bible, even our own religious traditions, teach us that to have your sins forgiven is to be made white as snow. The list goes on. It would be naive to think that these connections between blackness and death or darkness and evil do not inform racial biases. And this is what I think Baldwin is getting at when he says that the blackness of his skin reminds white folks of that which they do not want to face, which is reality. The fact that life is often tragic and cruel and that suffering and death and loss is inevitable. There is no escape. This is a powerful idea. Baldwin is saying that underneath racism, underneath white supremacy and anti-blackness in America is really this deep primal fear of death and the fear of life as it really is in all of its uncertainty. Baldwin is saying that there's something really Freudian, we would say, Freudian about white supremacy and anti-blackness. And until, until we come to terms with this, until we come to terms with suffering and death as a culture, white America, racism and anti-blackness will persist. It's an interesting theory Baldwin has, kind of unique to him. And it really intersects with a field that I'm personally invested in, and others are here, called radical theology. What is radical theology? Well, in short, radical theology is a school of thought that says it's only in the embrace of the cross. It's only in the embrace of the cross, which signifies the death of God. It's only in, in the embrace of the death of God, meaning the death of certainty, the death of, all, of the all-powerful supreme being who promises us health and wealth and an escape from death and suffering. It's only in the embrace of the death of that God and the death of the religions that function as an escape from reality. So much of religion functions as an escape from reality, yes? It's only by letting go of those things and those gods and embracing instead reality, meaning life as it really is, meaning embracing our mortality, our finitude, and life as it really is and all of its precariousness. That's hard. But it's only by embracing these things, which is what it means to embrace the cross, I believe, in part. It's only by embracing these things that one is reborn in the world and can fully affirm this life in this world in its depths and find a kind of serenity, a kind of solace in that. In other words, there's a kind of God, I'm saying. There's a kind of God. There's a kind of sacred and divine dimension to life and the world that can only be found, that can only be found by embracing a kind of atheism. Some gods need to die in order to find a better God, I guess we would say. But one must first destroy their idols of God. One must destroy their idols in order to find this God or this divine dimension to life. That's radical theology in a nutshell. Baldwin is saying something similar when he says, and I repeat, perhaps the whole, root, the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice the beauty of our lives. We will imprison ourselves in religions and races and armies and flags and nations in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death. They ought, we ought to decide indeed to earn our death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. 
It is the small beacon in that terrifying void from which we all come and from which we all shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. But white Americans do not believe in death. <laughs> By that, I think he means white Christian America does not believe in death. And this is why the darkness of my skin so intimidates them. Baldwin, I think, is basically saying that white America is like an addict in need of recovery. Because like an addict, white America has numbed themselves to the reality of life, the reality of death and suffering that so many others know all too well. And just like a 12-step program, it's only when an addict gets really honest and confronts the difficult and painful truths of their life, it's only then that they can begin to heal, get sober find serenity, find a new lease on life, a better life, find some solace. Until then, the attic and white America, for that matter, are in a prison of their own making. As Baldwin says, people who cannot suffer can never grow. People who cannot suffer can never grow up and can never discover who they are. Until white America confronts their own internal suffering, we will never come to terms with racism, he's saying. We will continue to scapegoat black bodies as an unconscious way of doing away with our own fears and antagonisms surrounding suffering and death. In this way, Baldwin believed that black liberation was absolutely tied to white liberation until white folks deal with their shit, if you will. <laughs> they'll continue to scapegoat black bodies. For this reason, Baldwin actually pitied white America. He pitied white America and saw their oppression as blacks, oppression of blacks as a kind of self-oppression. He says this, and this is the final quote I have today, and I'm almost done. He says, the price of the liberation of white people is the liberation of the blacks. The white man's unadmitted fears <clears throat> and longings are projected onto the blacks. The only way the white man can be released from the tyrannical power of black folks, so to speak, interesting that he put it that way, the tyrannical power of black folks is to become black himself. His words, not mine, is to become black himself, to become part of that suffering and dancing. He now watches wistfully from the heights of his lonely power, end quote. Our destinies are tied together, Baldwin believed, black and white. White America must be liberated from itself in order for Black America to be free too. This for me is really what makes Baldwin unlike any other writer, any other thinker. From his time or ours, he so eloquently weaves together these disparate and complex fields of psychology and psychoanalysis and philosophy and theology, right? And he uses them to explain and address some of our most complex and troubling problems. But that's my talk today about Baldwin, and I know there's a lot going on there, and I endeavored to give you in 20 minutes, you know, a lot. <laughs> and I hope it's not like, you know, drinking from a fire hose, but it's okay, maybe if it is. Um, and of course, we want to open it up for questions, for dialogue, discussion now. Um, what stood out to you today? What did you like? Yeah, I'm going to just give you this mic. Anything goes. Hi, thank you. Um, I have two comments. I think one might be really long and one is short. The first one, though, is that um, Dostoevsky was very popular with Harlem Renaissance writers. And you will see a lot of his themes show up in like Ralph Allison's work and um, Richard Wright and a whole bunch of other people. So I just wanted to, um, so it wasn't that that outside the pocket that he would be familiar. Um, the other thing I want to say is I think that Okay, so obviously I'm responding to the quotes out of context. I haven't read everything that um, 
you're talking about. But one of the things too with, um, you know, the darkness of the skin being, um, uh, I don't even remember the quote now. Um, oh, reminding of death is I think the other thing to remember is that race is a social construct. It was created by white people in order to justify chattel slavery. And it's, and the reason the suffering continues is that white people, and if we think about white Christians, they benefit from black people's suffering. So even if they, so the thing is that it's a reflection of all the things they don't want to happen to themselves, but that they let continue to happen. And so I think that's another thing that he's getting at that, um, should be talking about so like this the idea of like taking on to become black themselves this and this is an empathy thing right to say that could literally be me that that's happening to but so often that is not what happens that is oh wow that's what happens to black people and that this is something that we allow to continue to happen to black people because we don't want it to happen to us and we know it's awful because we don't want to be black so like, let's be real clear about what, what we're saying here is that it continues on because of that. And so I think that's the other part of the death of like coming to terms with the reality of being complicit in racism. Yeah, no, that's really good. Thank you for sharing those comments. I think, yeah. Thank you. Totally. Yeah. Who's that? It's me again, Karen, voice of heaven. <laughs> hi, hi, Karen. <laughs> yeah, that was so profound what this lady just said. Thank you so much. And it makes total sense uh, to me, all this beautiful talk that you gave again with so much depth. And um, I've seen that too. And I read that somewhere else um, that uh, the white supremacy thought it needs the um, people to, like of darker skin to suffer because they can always tell their kids, look, like, uh, be grateful for who you are, you know, so that you're not them, that you didn't grow up uh, being dark skinned. And so seeing the darkness as like a karma thing, it's similar for the Hindu people with the lower castes and or being born a girl and stuff. It's like they, they need to, for their own purposes they need to show that there are people that are worse off so that kids fear um like like be grateful to their white parents and that they are afraid of oh my goodness I'm so glad that I'm not them you know it's like I'm not poor I'm not blah blah and not realizing that policies make people uh, weak and poor not the color of their skin. It is it is uh, the system that makes people disadvantaged. It's not the person themselves. It has nothing to do with uh, a born a human being. You know, it's like a human being is only at the mercy of those in power. And so that's what I've learned and what I've seen by having attended an evangelical church for a little bit because a friend of mine goes there, even though they're, they're personally progressive in their, who they are as, a, uh, as people, but going to this church, and it, I only realized that um, being in this church, uh, when people said, well, we welcome the, um, anybody, you know, there are lots of uh, dark-skinned people in that, of all shades, in that church as well as LGBTQ people go there and they say, well, we love everybody uh, and uh, they're just confused or there's, it's like they, um, it's their karma. It's, it's sort of like the history of why they're still suffering, why they are still black is seen as on their way to God, basically. You know, it's like they, <laughs> I don't know, they have to be born a few more times and get whiter and whiter over time. They're sort of a, like a weird, understanding this yes you're welcome in this this color that your skin is right now or if you identify as trans or lgbtq but you're not okay yet you can only get better if you pray more and if you do more eventually you will get whiter and i couldn't sing the songs like oh we want to be white as snow and i said oh god that is awful 
yeah. that is so racist. I can't open my mouth and sing that song. Yeah. And and so and I also didn't see that there's anything wrong with LGBTQ people like as them being, you know, still confused and they're less than yeah. those that accept Christ into their hearts to be white as snow. Anyway, yeah. so it's it, it's this like it's this terrible stuckness of right. this kind of thinking that is so unopen and it perpetuates this fear of the devil, the enemy, the it, it's this the whole sermon has always um talk about the darkness and the demons and the blah 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 and people who force us to wear masks um yeah. they don't want uh, others to see our beautiful godly smiles so it's it's dangerous thinking and it's so false and so wrong and i'm so grateful that you yeah open this up and okay and well, thank you. i just yeah. want to say thank you to the lady who just spoke don't know her name i'm karen and i am grateful that she's there and that there's definitely nothing wrong with the bodies we are born into with or without legs, whatever shade of skin. And that's what my heart is convinced Amen. of. Amen. Thank you for Amen. those comments. Yeah. Thank Somebody you. else. Um, Emily and then Jason and then Jen here. Um, I always go back, back to my own experience and like my mother who I call the Pandora's box. And if she decided to face all the wrong that she has done, whether she knew it was wrong at the time or not, my dad included in the time when they existed, um, I think they wouldn't have the coping skills to come out of that. So I, I go, well, like you said, religion is an escape for them. They get protected by, well, that doesn't matter now because all that matters is this and now and i have to do this every day so there's no point in looking back or re and so it's we i wish she would realize that you can't have heroes without tragedy you can't have you know you can't have good things come out without bad things that started to begin with and i think that that's the beauty of life that maybe he was included in what he was trying to say, which is tough because tragedy sucks, you know, like 9-11, you know, we, it was the heroes of 9-11 and we should never forget, but we should get over 400 years of slavery, right? Like, how does that make absolutely any sense? Yeah, never forget 9-11, yeah, but then the, the right says, absolutely, we need to forget right. what happened get with over, like Jim Crow. Get, this is now, that was then, yeah. you know, this is not a thing when it's absolutely a thing and it is within every construct and infrastructure and everything that exists today. Yeah. And it's people like my mother who intentionally feel like she is involved and making a difference or not paying attention to color this quote unquote um her intentions are good but intention needs to be cut open and looked at and it needs to we need to look at what intention means and does it really need to have a place in making changes to move forward you know what i mean it's not just about the intention anymore it's what are you doing to not be a part of this so, you know, I love that people like to focus on the rise of Jesus, but you can't have the rise without the cross and the tragedy that happened there and the betrayal and all of those things. And if you don't focus on that, then there would be no rise. Yeah. So one, you can't remove one and just focus on the other. And I think that that's what we do in our history and our schools and our families and our religion and our whatever is like, we just try to focus on the good stuff and go in and try to deal with your day-to-day -day life. Well, what about what happened in the people who don't get to live their day-to-day -day life accordingly, just like you? So. Yeah. No, thank you for those thoughts, Jason. And then Jen, pass that down. Thank you. Yeah. These James Baldwin quote, Baldwin quotes are really deep. Yep. And uh, hold the mic up a little higher, please. Sorry. You're good. And honestly, a little intimidating <laughs> as a white dude, because um, I have my own 
historical and cultural uh, perspective as a white guy. And he really wants to blow those out of the water. And I'm, I'm here for it, but I'm also, I realize how far I have to go. Hmm. Um, so I didn't want to put in my own two bits, but I did, it did, these things reminded me of a couple of things um, that I wanted to mention. One, um, I've read a lot of Dostoevsky also, and uh, there's one theme that I love uh, conceptually in his stuff, especially like Brothers K, Crime and Punishment. Um, anyway, uh, there's a quote I'm going to read for you says there's only one way to salvation and that is to make yourself responsible for all men's sins as soon as you make yourself responsible in all sincerity for everything and for everyone you will see at once that this is really so and that you in fact are to blame for everyone and for all things um which i think relates to those quotes about um not becoming black as a white person, but understanding that that those people that that we're all that this is us. Those things that happen to those people are things that happen to all of us. And when we separate ourselves out and say, you know, that's not our nation, or you're black and I'm white and they're different. And I'm not trying to whitewash blackness, but I am trying to say that there's this perspective shift that white people in particular have to sort of try to understand that we dehumanize people all the time as a matter of course. Um, and we need to take responsibility for that and understand that those are our brothers being lynched. And those are our, you know, our family members that are being raped and abused starving whatever and it's it's our responsibility and our we should t take ownership of that as well yeah so that was one quote and then the other one uh there's this guy i've been following uh named dan mcclellan he's like a bible scholar i think he comes out of the latter-day saints or something okay jehovah's witness or whatever but um he he does a lot of bible analysis okay um and this quote has a lot of big words, but I think it's interesting. He says, um, God's nature must be negotiated from the Bible and those negotiations as here, he's responding to somebody, are mostly aimed not at understanding, but at structuring power, hmm. e.g. an omnipresent and immaterial God is a post-biblical renegotiation. The Bible presents a unilaterally anthropomorphic and corporeal deity. So a guy who spent the last 30 years or whatever analyzing Bible texts says that the God of the Bible is corporeal, not in the clouds, but right. like a incarnated physical yeah. deity and anthropomorphic. He's like us, like uh yeah, something that we, it's not necessarily an unknown. The one in the Bible that he's saying, whatever God is, but he's saying, if you want to interpret what the Bible's saying, that God that's in the Bible is a being with a form that uh, maybe suffers, right? Can't be taken out into this sort of totally conceptual um nebulous nothing mm. um, so i mean you can have philosophy about god maybe uh extra biblical right but the god in the bible that old testament new testament god is is a, a thing that's here mm. and i just think that's really interesting yeah it is what you're looking at yeah that's good stuff yeah thank you jason so um my wife, Ashley, is reading the 1619 Project right now with her church. 1619 Project? The book. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, so I get 
bits of it by, you know, we talk about it together. And um, so I think, uh, you know, I don't know if James Baldwin also addresses this, but it's very similar to like what Akila and Emily were saying is, but I think what collectively white people now and generations past need are afraid of when looking at the plight of the black man is responsibility mm. because this country was founded on slavery and the subjugation of those black bodies and then the brown bodies we found here so if you're really going to look at you know the myriad of issues that are affecting black people today in this country they are our fault like from the very beginning so there has to be responsibility there like how do we what do we do and that's really scary that's such a big concept of like oh we caused this you know maybe not me personally but i am part of the system that perpetuates it so i think that is also what is terrifying and is death because we've caused all this death and pain and suffering to an unimaginable extent for hundreds of years so yeah thank, thank you. you sure marcia would you pass it to marcia i'll just be short my own father made sure in the household that I would understand all people are the same, that we all came as a baby with the intent of being a loving little thing and our society shapes us, but we're all born good and all people are the same, whether they have different color or different shape eyes or anything else that the variety is what makes life beautiful, just like there's not just one flower, but many, many kinds and shapes and colors. So I grew up like that. And my example is that I was a very good tennis player, very athletic. And I went to a public um, community court. So you pick up games playing tennis. And I'd done this many weekends, not school time as a teenager. And I talked to my parents and said, I've met someone, a really great player. We, we, we see each other often. Can I bring, you know, I'd like you to meet my friend. So my parents, I don't remember my mom, but my dad was home and I brought my friend and he was black. And I never saw him as black. I just saw him as a great tennis player. And my dad like was in shock. And Apparently, this nice young man understood the shock face and what it might mean. I was flabbergasted. And the friend excused himself, said, oh, you know, I, I really should get home because I need to do something. And my point of this is I was in shock because it occurred to me, my dad taught me how to believe and live. But when it came face to face, something inside him reacted. It didn't affect me and he didn't try to make it affect me. So my comment is that even if you yourself hold prejudices because whatever in your environment helped you have them, one thing you can do is you don't have to perpetuate it. And so I'm a living example of my father that hid his from me. So I didn't have them, I don't have them. And it's a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Marcia. You know, I, you reminded me of something I just want to like mention here. And I think Baldwin touches upon in maybe one or two of the quotes here, but also in his book, I, I think he was trying to pursue a kind of unity between black and white. I think he was interested in some reparative, you know, and, and, and healing, but I think he realized, understood better than anybody the fact that this idea that we're all the same okay but that solidarity that sameness can only really take shape and become real when we acknowledge that in a sense our experiences and the way the world has treated us is not the same 
And there's some real problems and there's some real hurts. And the only way to achieve any kind of healing or unity is to acknowledge our lack of sameness. Does that make sense? And so it's kind of like a lot of things here that we talk about. It's dialectical, you know, as Emily was talking about, there is no way, you know, we, we so often just want to embrace the risen Christ and not the crucified Christ. Right. And we have to find a way to, to do that. Right. And, and likewise, this idea of being colorblind and seeing everybody the same, I think, I think that's sort of like the ideal, but we don't live in a world of ideals. We live in, the, in a world full of brokenness and tension and difficulty and the only way I think to move forward and have a kind of unity and a kind of um, shared humanity is by acknowledging that not everybody's experience has been the same. And, and that has to be acknowledged for there to be healing. Like in anything, like in a marriage, Maybe like my wife and I, like, yeah, we're, we're married, we're united, right? But in a sense, that unity is entirely dependent upon us recognizing each other's differences and our different needs and our different stories and taking responsibility for our shit, right? And, and, and trying to do better. And acknowledging that her experience is not my experience and vice versa. So in a sense, that sameness, that unity can only happen after you embrace the disunity, the lack of sameness. This idea of just being colorblind is problematic because it doesn't acknowledge the story and the, the uniqueness of what it means to be brown or black and what that came with what that still comes with, what that still means. Does that make sense? Um, you know, same thing with LGBT, anybody from any kind of an oppressed uh, class. This idea of building bridges and, and forming unity only happens when the other is fully heard in their difference and, and their pain or their suffering is taken seriously and not simply dismissed. Well, we're all the same. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah. That's problematic. Right. Um, but that's what a lot of people try to do. They try to just get over all that stuff in order to get to unity without acknowledging yeah. all the hurt, all the brokenness that has to be acknowledged for there to be any kind of unity. Mm-hmm. Right. And, that, and that's true in every, that's true in a relationship. That's true in the culture. Um, and I'm hearing other people raising their voices. Um, I, I want to acknowledge, I'm hearing somebody online real quick. Am I hearing somebody online? Yes. Who's that? It's Karen again. If okay. there's time, but hey, I don't Karen. see. Who else hey, Karen, is... hold. Hey, Karen, one second. We've got a couple other hands here, so okay. just please, uh, just make okay. it uh, brief. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, because I don't see the congregation, yeah. <laughs> so I never. I have to just blindly lunge forward. Yeah, so totally, I apologize totally. to no anyone, because obviously everybody should. Um, as so I wanted to say the same thing again about um, the um, abuse or neglect in um, where it all starts is in the home. And no matter, like leaving the social experiences aside, it's a differential of power, not only differences in who we are culturally, like what happened to us as we grew up. Um, My main focus is this being anti-violence includes being anti-racist and um, really understanding where violence is hidden. And it really literally starts in the home between when one, when the parents have so much more power and knowledge than this tiny little person that is being born and how much they need care and love and understanding for how they experience the world. Mm. And that is so forgotten and misunderstood with what we have taught, what humans are. And that's where all the mistakes happen is in this differential of power when we don't recognize the other person for being completely different from us and their experience, you know, what scares them is not maybe scary to an, a grown up. And yeah. I just wanted to throw this in into when we think back of what can we do? You know, it's one thing to recognize the suffering, yes, and how I, as a white person born in 1969, in, um, you know, so I'm also part of the system. If I don't raise my voice, if I don't try to actively change it, I'm part of the problem that perpetuates this every single day. I seek comfort over discomfort. And for me, being open to being uncomfortable with facing the things that make me uncomfortable, um, not threaten me, but make me uncomfortable, that is important to me. So I seek um, unity through more love, more compassion, like addressing the issue. How can I help? How can I make you feel better? What can I do in the system? Yeah. So that's what I say. And it really literally starts in everybody's home. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Karen. Wonderful. Beautiful. Um, who had their hand up over here? Leanne, was that you? 
just a quick comment. Um, I just really, um, my parents-in-law who are, you know, left of center moderates, I just seeing how they react to, uh, you know, apropos today, like Kaepernick kneeling and their reaction to the phrase critical race theory and how violently, not violently, but emotional they get when they even hear it. Um, it's just hard sometimes when it's like, they're not even like far right. Like they're a reasonable people mostly can have a reasonable conversation. They're voted for Biden. Not that that's the litmus test for sanity, but, um, but it helps. Um, but just to hear that, like, they can't even talk about critical, like they can't even hear it. It makes them angry. Like they're like, Oh, I just don't. So anyway, I just don't know what the solution is when, those phrases get weaponized when someone kneeling during a game that gets weaponized. Like, how do you, how does that, how can you change that conversation when they just, it's like the idea of like criticizing their rate. They, they, it's like, they can't even. So it's. Yeah. <laughs> Here, Emily. Yeah. Well, I was going to say to that point as well acknowledging and recognizing our part, like he said over there, is the tragedy and we can't reach unity until the, like we will then be the heroes, everyone though, once we acknowledge everything, make things right, do what we need to do as a people, um, I mean, white people. And cause we can't have, again, like we can't, we can't have a tragedy that happened, ignore it and move forward while everyone's being left behind. So we, the acknowledging part is going to be hard for those white people like my mom who are like, well, let's just keep moving forward. Okay. But we can't move forward until we look back and make that right, because that's still a mess back there. And you're just looking forward to the next day. Like it's not, you know, so we can't have a good togetherness and unity until we fix what was done. Excellent thoughts. Wow, we could just <laughs> go on all day. I love that everybody gets a chance to jump in. Um, but we want to conclude. It's 1131. Uh, I did want to mention that um, next Sunday, Jalen Livingston will be here speaking. He'll be in town um, directing. He's touring. For those of you who don't know, Jalen was a big part of this, uh, this community years ago before he moved to New York. Anyway, he's in town directing a play for just a few weeks and works out really well that he can be here. Uh, that's Jalen. I don't know what he's going to be talking about next week, but he knows we're in this series. And he was like, oh, awesome. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, and so those of you interested, um, that's Jalen and he will be here, but I want to conclude with our benediction uh, as a way of recentering ourselves and, and leaving on a, on a good note. Let's say this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves as Christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here. And thank you to all of you who join us um, via Zoom, Karen, whoever else is there. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, join us for the picnic. Uh, we will depart here in a few minutes, but go in peace. Thank you.